It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into another edition of the Skinny Podcast, the Potpourri Edition, with my man Rick Brewing. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor. As always, it's presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. We cover ground on the local front from baseball to football to basketball to everything in between to stuff on the national front. And yes, from what I'm told, I've not seen the list yet because Rick controls the list. Apparently, we are back in the realm of ghost stories to end this podcast. Well, it's, the, it's the writing team, Skinny, that controls that's true. the that's, topic, that's right. so we that's right. approve them. That's right. We have a live studio audience, by the way, one floor below us. Yes. So there yes. you go. Two, actually, two floors below us is where the live studio audience is. And cameras. Skinny, it's opening day eve. Are you yes, excited? We're recording this on Wednesday. You know what's funny? It, I don't feel a buzz for it. Do you? I don't either. I feel like normally there's more of a hullabaloo. Yep. It seemed like... I two, like hullabaloo. You're too young to use hullabaloo, but go ahead. It seemed like two, three weeks ago everyone was talking about the Reds. I know. I'm really excited about them, and this week I've heard nothing. Well, did college basketball do that? Did, Maybe a little, I, ma- little madness got to them. I don't... Ooh, did the Bearcats deflate opening day? Maybe. Maybe the Musketeers is, losing to the NIT. Could be. Could be. P.J. Washington in a boot. Could be. No, it is. It's weird. I, it seems like there's still more excitement for the parade and all the stuff that goes around it, but very little baseball conversation, right? Right. Well, let's get into right, some. Let's do it. Nick Senzel injured his ankle sliding into second base in minor league camp Monday, and on Tuesday, the Reds revealed he's got a sprain and was put into a walking boot for the next 7 to 14 days. They'd already announced that he would be sent down to AAA. It was also reported that he'll continue playing center field in AAA when he's healthy again. Skinny, what do you think is a reasonable expectation for Reds fans in terms of when they'll see Senzel? Do you think it's the right move to play him at center field in AAA? And how concerned should Reds fans be about his growing injury history? There's a lot there, man. There's a lot there for one guy. I think you got to be concerned. And, and, and look, I, I'm not one that calls players fragile, and I don't blame the Guys get hurt. I'm sorry they get hurt. And some guys get hurt more than others. Tyler Eifert's a great example, right? I mean, has Tyler Eifert done anything to intentionally get himself hurt? I mean, the only argument you have is playing in the Pro Bowl. That's not his fault. It's just that's the stupid Pro Bowl, and he played in it and got hurt. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you're talking vertigo to a finger to an ankle. So suddenly he starts becoming the game of operation like Tyler Eifert is, not to completely his extent. But, yeah, I, I think you do get concerned about his growing injury history, and hopefully it gets fixed. Um, but... Uh, you know, as far as the other part too, the reasonable expectation for me is when now it's whenever you deem him ready. I think the initial one was get the service time over with. That's two weeks of playing in AAA or thereabouts. As soon as that's up and the clock's, you know, is is, is in your favor, then go ahead and bring him up. Well, now you know you got to get him out of the walking boot. You got to get him playing a little bit. It'd almost take a rehab assignment, even though it's not a rehab assignment because he's already in Louisville. I think he's got to get probably at least a week or two's worth of at bats there. I, I'd say you see him at best end of April, maybe first part of May. I mean, that's the thing. You're talking about the end of April now, right, in terms of when he could reasonably even be healthy again and and ready to contribute. Then when you start thinking about that, you you already got the extra year of control here because he's definitely not going to be ready in 16 days. But now do you start thinking about Super 2 stuff? And do you try to keep it, you know, keep him away from that because you're only maybe I, another I, I, I two think, weeks away from that? Yeah, I, I, I think though you're at that stage where if he's ready to play at this level, you've already bought at least another year, and at some stage, you know, you can only do so much. Well, you've already pissed off his agent. Why not cost well, him tens the, of more millions? The thing is, he, he, he did make his agent mad, but now it's kind of a moot point, right? Because he's in the boot anyway, so it, it, it wouldn't matter. Well, and that's why the whole situation just kind of stinks because you made the tough call that you. 
it was an easy call real in reality. Very easy call. It was a tough one to sell to I think the fans. And, and Dick the Williams kid, can't come agent. out and say we're doing it for that reason. Well, I think you could. The problem is You're not gonna. No one will ever be right. upfront and honest right. about this right. stuff. Um except for an agent who, who wants to get paid. Yes, correct. Um, but I, I think the biggest concern here is the the injury history because this is a guy that pretty clearly the Reds staked their future to this offseason in terms of when we got into those conversations about bigger, you know, free agents or trade or trades. Pieces, and he was probably a trade piece if they wanted to do it. We always went back to Nixon Zell is the reason either you're not pulling the trigger on a trade or why, well, you may not want to go out and spend all this money on this top guy because of what you had coming up and Nixon Zell being one of those guys. Now we're getting into another injury. It's becoming a thing. It's a narrative that was already kind of out there. Now it's definitely out there, man. I mean, it, I'd be, I'm concerned as a Reds fan. I am concerned about how you, like you said, you never want to call a guy. Can, fragile. The, vertigo, can the vertigo come back? Right. But at this point, how reliable is this guy? There are just certain guys that are like that and there's nothing you can do. Like you said, so uh, yeah, it is definitely concerning, but I think we're going to get into Scooter Jeanette as well because that plays a role into yeah. all of this. But I think from the Reds' perspective, this is not a great way to be starting the season. No, I agreed with that part. Now, as far as keeping him in center field, I think that is the right move because I do think as, a, as an infielder, he can always go back. He's not going to need like a, you know, I think to play center field, he's going to need lots of reps to do that on a continual basis in order to be a good center field. He's a good athlete already, so that, that helps a ton. I think he can always go back to playing the infield. So I think for right now, even though Jeanette's out, and I know that's where you're saying, well, you can plug him in there. Well, may, maybe moving forward, maybe he is better in the outfield. Maybe that does solve it, because don't forget, after this year, Yasiel Puig is a free agent, and Matt Kemp is a free agent, and you're definitely not going to resign Matt Kemp. And Yasiel Puig, I think, is dependent on the way the season goes and where your monies lie and all those things. Yeah, Taylor Trammell is close to coming up, but maybe your outfield of the future is... Winker, Winker, Shebler, Senzel, Trammell in some kind of form, and Senzel becomes a swing guy. I, I think it's the right thing to keep him in one spot for right now because you can always move him back. Well, I think the argument would have became, okay, now that he's going down for the first month and a half plus of the season, do you get to the point where you're almost to the All-Star break and you're going to be thinking about trading Scooter Jeanette at that Probably point? You can't, you're you, need, I don't think you can do it because he may not be back until we're get to, well, uh, until he may not get any bats before the, uh, the, the trade deadline. Right, and that's why he factors into all of this too. So let's go ahead and get into right. Scooter Jeanette as well. Uh, Scooter Jeanette suffered a right groin strain last week and is expected to be out for 8 to 12 weeks. The Reds are playing to play Jose Iglesias at shortstop and Jose Peraza at second base while Jeanette is out. Obviously, like we said, Sinzel was already sent down to triple He'll be uh, training at center field when he gets healthy again, but he'll be out for uh, for a while as well. Um, how big of a blow is it for the Reds to lose Jeanette for two or three months to start the season? I think it is because he was going to hit fourth or fifth in your lineup, right? Somewhere in that power power area. Um, he's a rare commodity of a of a guy who can is a, is a power hitting middle infielder. Um, now you, you may make yourself better defensively because now you're putting Iglesias, who's a true shortstop, at short. Peraza can play second. We've seen it before. Um, if Peraza takes another step forward offensively, maybe that takes up forward, and maybe maybe with what you've got around Jeanette this year in the lineup, or would have had between Kemp and Puig, and um, you know the way the lineup kind of constructs, and hopefully an improved. Peraza, who had a good year last year. Suarez, I still think there's a little room that he's going to add to his numbers, too. And, and honestly, I think he's got a chance to be an MVP candidate this year. Um, I think you can make up for for a little bit of it, but 
he's just made for that ballpark. I mean, he just really, and he's just he's he's still in his power prime, and he's not taken two to three months away from that power prime. And I, it, it's a shame because I I do think he was a big part of what they what they needed to do to have some success. I think you can. You're going to have to have some guys play really well. You're going to have to have Shebler play really well. You're going to have to have Winker stay healthy. And if Winker does what he did for the couple of months, he was really healthy last year, that can make up for it. But look, I mean, you you were already thinking this was at best, for some people, a 500-ish club, and you've taken a 24, 25, and 90 bat out of the lineup. That's a pretty big taken out of the lineup. Yeah, it's it's a definite hit. I mean, in terms of trying what they're trying to do this season and winning this year, I think it is definitely a hit. Um, and like you said, it's an offensive downgrade, but defensively it's certainly an upgrade because Scooter Jeanette is one of the worst middle infielders in all of baseball, and you're plugging in a guy in Iglesias who's one of the best middle infielders of all of baseball. So you're definitely getting an upgrade there, and I think even sliding Peraza from shortstop where he's okay over to second base where he's probably one of the better right. second basemen in the National League is, is an overall upgrade. And when you think about some of the guys that are going to be in the outfield – not the most fleet of foot anymore without Billy Hamilton out there. Probably not the best f- group of fielders you've seen in, in a major league outfield as well. A pitching staff that's going through some injuries to start. It might not be the worst thing in the world to have a really good middle of the infield here to start the season. Also, I, I know Scooter Jeanette has proven it for a little while now since he came back to two Cincinnati. Two years worth. Since he came two, Cincinnati. two years worth. And, and if you look at he last has, year in Milwaukee, he was really good. But also, if you look at the second half of last year... He started coming back down to earth, and guess what? His numbers look a lot like Peraza's and Iglesias all of a sudden. So I'm still not 100% certain that he's not going to come down to earth and and put up more pedestrian numbers at some point. I know he's done enough to to sort of be past that, but... I think he has too. But I'm still not fully sold that he's an an all-star. There is the other possibility. I mean, Derek Dietrich can play a little second base, and he's a left-handed bat. Um, I don't think he'd play him long-term, but he can get you some at-bats in there. And maybe when Sinzel is ready to play, maybe you do plug him in there for some some days at second base, and and, and maybe he hits and and you never look back, and suddenly your decisions made for you. This was an easy decision to make, so I don't know. Maybe maybe this this is this is somewhat good, but I think for a team trying to win now, it's not. So for for the for trying to win now, I don't think it helps them. But this is where I think it does get interesting. Is what we were sort of talking about when you get towards the middle of the season, because basically. What the Reds have done to this point with the last offseason and signing the players that they did that were basically one-year rentals in a lot of cases, or guys that if everything works out, maybe you decide they're a part of your future and you pay them some money, but they've left everything murky. They've given themselves as many options as possible going forward. I do too. Well, I don't think it's bad. Right. I don't know that it's good. Okay, yeah, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's a bad thing to do. I don't think it's a bad way of approaching it. I think fans are getting anxious. They want answers. And I think when you're going to be coming around to that trade deadline, fans are going to want to know what is the future of Scooter Jeanette and Nick Senzel and these guys that you've been telling us are coming. July is going to be really interesting. But the thing that this does, the fact that Jeanette and Senzel really won't be playing for the first month or two of the season, and then it'll probably take them some time after that to get really in the swing of things, is... You can't shake the Reds down now if you're an opposing team trying to trying to force them to trade because you don't know if Scooter Jeanette is the guy right. they think is their future. Right. They have not committed one way or the other. You don't know what they're thinking about Nixon Zell being the, their future center fielder, and we're really not going to have a great idea of that even when the trade deadline comes around. So if you're an I, opposing I think team— Sen- I think Senzel you will, because I think you'll get at least enough of Senzel to, to know— But I don't think it, you'll know how he factors in with Scooter Jeanette yet. You won't maybe, have a good feel maybe, of what yeah. their plan is for Scooter Jeanette. And that takes away the ability 
for other teams to do what they've done to them in in past cases of, of guys they've traded recently. Um, you just they've they've let that that value tick away and tick away and tick away until you get to the trade deadline and teams are going, well, we know you have to trade them or you're going to let them walk for nothing. So you, you end up giving them up for not a lot. This year, I think they're in a better position where teams are just, they're not going to know what their plan is when the trade deadline comes around, even if they're losing. Yeah, but, but all right, let's just say Jeanette, let's say Jeanette gets back the very first part of July. And that's probably a worst case scenario, but let's just say he gets back the first part of July and he doesn't have enough at-bats to, to make you think one way or the other if you're the Reds, which what you've got. And other teams, um, other teams can shake you down for him because you're like, I want to get something for him because we're not going to go to free agency with him. The flip side is, what happens if you hang on to him and you can't trade him and he has a great last couple of months and then you've got nothing for him and he goes to free agency? Yeah, that, I mean, that stinks, I mean, right? But the, what, I'm, what I'm saying is no one's going to be able to go in there knowing the plan for the Reds. I don't think they know the plan because I right. think the plan's so fluid that's, that they don't know the that's plan. That's my exact point. It's not a situation where we know Scooter Jeanette is a guy they have to get rid of because he doesn't fit into their future plans. He might be their future second right. baseman in their mind, and Senzel might be a future second center, or second center fielder. Yep. So the, I don't think teams can just – it's not going to be as easy for opposing teams to go into the trade deadline and say – we we know we can get him on the cheap. I think the Reds will have a little more leverage than they might have otherwise had. That's I'm doing my best to put a spin zone on why the injuries could be slightly positive. Other than that, well, it's a pretty it, crappy way to start the it, start the year. It is, but it it does give you a chance. Like I said, when Senzel comes back, maybe he does play some second base, and maybe all of a sudden he roots himself in a second base spot, or maybe he goes and plays center field, and you're like. Damn, he is the center fielder of the future. He isn't just the guy we're trying to find some at bats for because we already had a second baseman. Maybe he, that, that, maybe that's his normal spot, and you move a Shebler. I, I, again, it's I think the fluid part of it's fine. It, it, you have options, yeah. which is nice to have options as opposed to your only option is to deal our three best starting pitchers because we can't pay him. We just need to get something back for him. Yeah. That didn't work so good. Yeah. Well, and I think also the nature of all these one-year rental type guys, all these contracts coming up in the year, makes it all kind of fluid well, and you don't know what they're going to do. We talked about this a couple months ago when they made these deals. I, I, I think that's the way the Reds have to do business right now is the one-year rental guy. I, I, I like it. I don't mind it because it, it gives you a fighting chance competitively and then gives you the fluidity at a, at a trade deadline of maybe making some moves to help yourself going forward. I, I have no problem. It, it gives you almost... Really, almost four months to decide, are you in it or are you not in it? And, yeah. and and your performance is going to dictate if you're in it or not in it. And yeah, there's always the possibility that you're two games out of the wild card. Is that close enough? Or is it time to fit? Is it time to cut bait? Which one is it? Time to fish or cut bait? Which one is it? There is that possibility. But I think after four months, you know what kind of ball club you've got or what moves you need to make moving forward to go now. Yeah, and, and again, I think that's the thing that, that's so interesting with this club. Even if they're probably not going to be in a winning position when the trade deadline comes around. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, but even let's just say they're not. Even if they're not, you still have no idea what their plan is with all these guys. It, they literally could do anything Correct. with a lot of these guys. Yeah, Kemp's about the only one you think that, that's probably the not, most expendable guy. Right, right. He's probably not a part of their yes. long-term plan. Puig could be. He could be. Who knows? So I just think that is the one thing that... Having both Senzel and Jeanette injured just really adds the murkiness of what their plan is going to be because they still don't know. Yeah. So I think it's going to make it difficult for other teams to really leverage uh, on some of those guys. Skinny Vegas has set the line for Reds total wins at 78 and a half for this season. That places them at fourth in the National League Central behind the Cardinals, 88 wins, the Cubs, 87 and a half wins, and the Brewers at 60, 86 and a half wins, excuse me. The Pirates total is set one game behind the Reds at 77 and a half, being in last. 
Would you bet on the Reds winning over or under 77 and a half games in the 2019 season? I, I'll go over because I still think this is an offense, even without Scooter Jeanette, can score in the upper 700s of runs. And this pitching staff, with just even slight improvement, I'm not even asking Tanner Roark, Sonny Gray, Alex Wood to pitch to their all-star years. I'm just asking you to be about a run better than the Jamokes that you started last year. I don't think that's asking a whole lot. I really don't think that's a, I'm not look, I'm not asking for mid-threes and ERAs here. I'm not. So what, they win 68 games last year? 68 and 94, yeah, 68 yeah. and 94. So we're talking about a 10-game improvement, basically, is what you're asking. Yeah, I, 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 you know, if you crunch the numbers, there's a Pythagorean theorem calculator you can use, which basically you plug in how many runs you think the team's going to score versus how many they're going to give up, and you can get an estimated win total. If this team scores in the upper 700s and gives up about 740 runs, and I don't think that's a big ask because I think this staff is capable of doing that, that's an 86-win team. And I still think that team's capable of doing that. I really believe that. I, I'm, I'm not, going 86 and 76. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm going 86 and 76. I'm not against this team. They're gonna have to. They're gonna have to show it to me first. I just in the, the fair. Re- the reason being is that this division is just too good. Not everyone can win eighty six games in this I think division. Pittsburgh's it's just bad. I, I think they're like sixty seven wins bad. I mean, they might be. I don't. I know think Milwaukee takes a step back. I don't. Well, I do like St. Louis. I like St. Louis a lot. I love the Cubs. I don't think Milwaukee's taking a step back behind the Reds. I, mean, I don't know. I think it's very cap- I think it's very possible. Man, I, I think it's very possible. We see that very differently. Okay. But I, I just I don't think the Reds are bad. I think they will be improved, but I just don't know. Even if they improve, I don't know that they, that moves them up ten games. I'm gonna go under. I just okay. for now they're gonna have to prove it. And again So you made all these moves that, that, that are improving this ball club and they're not ten wins better than last year's year? the problem. That, that, like, that starting staff last year was a joke. Yeah, but okay, Alex Wood is already hurt to start this year. Well, I was Who only knows- count- I was Count on Alex Wood for about 28 starts. That's about what he is. Who knows what he's going to be and when he's going to be back into form and how he's going to do. And the rest of the guys, like, I don't know that I'm that excited about Sonny Gray and Tanner Roark. Like, oh, I, I'm more excited than... than, than I, I uh, think they're an improvement, but... Cody Reed, just give me whoever you want to throw out there. They're an improvement. Sal Romano. They're an improvement for sure, but... Again, I'm going to have to see it first. I just I don't believe that this team is ten wins better yet. Be, being in this division, right, that's the thing. Th- th- that this really... isn't on your board of question in the, in this thing. Two two biggest key players this year. I got two. Well, I think it's I think it's who I just named: Sonny Gray and Tanner Rowe. Nah, I think I, it's starting I, I'm pitching. Going, all the be way. Okay. I got two two guys though that could be the biggest difference makers on this team. Two guys. I, I will take. Two guys who are going to take the ball every fifth day and need to make a market improvement over the guys who were the two and three spots for last year's but, team. Okay, those guys are what they are, basically, though, right? We, they've pitched enough to their baseball card says what they are. I don't. Uh, I don't, whoa! They're, the Reds are banking on them being very different than what their baseball card is. No, I mean, take Sonny Gray's Yankee Stadium ERA out, and he's fine. Take his Yankee. But that's the problem. You want to take his Yankee ERA? We can't just. That's not the back of his baseball card. Then mm, it's 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 a it's a it's a high three low four ERA pitcher. I'm going to take that on oh. this club. Okay. To me, two guys: okay. Luis Castillo, because he does have upside. He does have potential. He has potential to be an ace. I don't know if he's ever going to reach it. But he's got the stuff of that guy. And the light bulb didn't go off in the spring for the most part. It didn't go off last year. I, I, he's just one guy. I look and go, that guy can take that quantum leap from a guy that, that we're not quite sure to, damn, he's good. Give me him every fifth day. Well, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, we're talking about a starting pitcher, though. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't. Okay, well, yeah, I, that's, yeah. I think it's starting pitching. No, well, no I'm going to score two guys in particular. I think, I'm, I think I know what I'm getting from Tanner Roark, Sonny Gray, and Alex Wood. I really do. 
I think if they're going to, the three of them are going to combine for about 40 wins and an ERA of about four. I, re- I, I, I feel like I can make okay. a book on so that. So I, I get the argument for Castillo because of the upside and the yes. fact that he's unknown. And, and the other one is Joey Votto. Does Joey really? Votto take a precipitous decline again in power numbers, or was last year kind of just a fluke? And it's hard for me to believe it was a fluke because of his age. Because eventually you just reach that stage where you just don't have it. And, and if, if, if he can somehow change that back, and it would almost be like the magic pill, I don't need 40 home run Joey Votto, but I sure could use 27 home run Joey Votto. And maybe he gets that because people have to pitch to him now, as opposed to looking at the rest of the line and going, nah, we'll, you, we'll pitch around you and you're going to have to swing it slop and he won't swing it slop. And maybe last year, I think there were times he probably did swing out of the zone that he's not, not used to because he realized nobody else can do this but me and yeah, Suarez maybe. But I, 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 he, I think he's got a chance to revert back to some positive numbers. Maybe that's too optimistic on my part. Maybe I should just look and go, look, if you look at everybody's career, they hit a certain stage, and when the decline starts, the decline starts, and there's really not, there's, there's really no stopping the decline. See, I think you're almost being too pessimistic, thinking that it's, it's even likely or probable that he would be in the midst of a decline right now. I, I still think he's one of the better hitters in baseball. I do. I'm talking his, about power. His, power, power, his power has declined some. I don't know that it'll get that all back. Oh, but I, I think, think it declined a bunch. Well, it did last year. Yeah. But it's, I think it'll bounce back from last year. I don't know that it's going to continue on that decline i don't again all i do just go, go look at and you do i mean no i understand go, go i understand at, what you're saying you but hit I'm that just saying, age i don't where think it's, just, it's over for joey vada yet i don't think it's over but i i, I can't have him decline again right right you, you I, I think he, he'll bounce back a little bit okay. i don't think he'll get all the way back but i think it'll be somewhere in between with the power those numbers. two guys for me are the two key guys see I, I i i could see that i don't think either one of those arguments are bad if i'm going position player over vado i think i'd go yasiel puig I yeah, just think, it's it's interesting because who he could he could bat two forty three with a bunch of strikeouts, or he could just hit missiles all over that ballpark and have a bunch and have a good time in a new uniform in a new city. Fans love him; he loves them, right? Well, the, he does seem so. I mean, sort of like his mindset seems attached to his performance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if he's in the right mindset and he enjoys what he's doing and everything's going well, it seems like he can be a pretty darn productive player and really exciting and really fun and really energize your ball club. At other times, I think he'd be a little bit combustible. So I do think um, the fact that he brings some serious upside if he's playing at his best would obviously help this team a lot. But also, the fact that you just brought up about Joey Votto, if Yasiel Puig is hitting... That could make Joey Votto a whole lot better too, because no all of a sudden you've got to respect you've got to respect the power behind Joey Votto. If Yasiel Puig, well, is if he hit. bats second ahead of Joey Votto, if Joey Votto e- bats second, well, yeah. Right. I mean, Either way, you've got to respect guys in the lineup around Joey. No Votto, doubt and that protects him a little bit more. No, no doubt. Um, you know, the other part too with the Senzel injury is is it? I think it does make Puig an everyday player, literally every day. Whereas before you were trying to juggle f- maybe you know four guys for three spots, maybe even five guys for three spots. Um, this does ba- ma- basically make it. Hey, you're the you're the guy in right. Shebler's in center, and we'll probably platoon Winker and, and Kemp or work Kemp around in there somewhere. And maybe maybe that makes Puig happier as opposed to in L.A. where li- it was a literal right-handed lineup, left-handed lineup, and there was not much the twain will meet. I mean, you saw it in the playoffs when a right-hander would come in, out would go the righties, in would come the lefties. When a left-hander come, out would go the lefties, in would come the righties. If there's a left-hander starting. Starts his whole right-handed line. doesn't matter if a guy who's left-handed hit three home runs the night before. Maybe Puig this way, he's not looking over his shoulder, and he has a magical year. It's possible. Yep. Skinny, let's switch gears here to the Bengals. The Sporting News ranked every NFL team's free agency on Tuesday with the Bengals earning a C-. The Bengals lost linebacker Vontez Perfect and Tylen 
tight end Tyler Croft, while adding guard John Miller, cornerback B.W. Webb, and defensive end Kerry Wynn. They also re-signed some uh, key free agents that were already with the team. The Bengals tied with the Steelers for the lowest grade in the AFC North. The Baltimore Ravens were given a B, while the Cleveland Browns were one of the four teams to receive an A grade. Do you agree with the Bengals' grade of C- for what the team accomplished during free agency? I thought about this before you even put this on the topic list of what I would have graded them because I was thinking about doing a column on it. I'm giving them a C plus B minus. I know they didn't make a splash free agency signing, but I thought I think you did what I thought they were going to do, and maybe that's me having low standards. How big was the Darquez Denard signing? That one added to it. That I think took that it to the changed C plus it B minus. Absolutely. From you, feeling really bad about you, things to feeling like I would have felt bad. I would have felt eh. If you don't get Darquez Denard, I think it's a pretty bad offseason. Mm. I, I don't. I, I know people laugh at the Bobby Hart signing, but you have to at least have you've got to have a plan in place at right tackle going. You just had to. Whether I you, think most fans would argue that's not much of a okay. plan. Okay. Look, I get it, but you, you can't all of a sudden go into the draft with one offensive tackle on your roster. You're, you cannot do that. You're right. I think other people okay. would argue go find anyone else. Fair enough. But I, I, that signing doesn't bother me because they, they, they are going to draft a lineman high. It doesn't mean either, but there's no way it's helping their grade. Well, okay, with with Bobby Hart and a full complement of players, they were 4-1. and one. Now, Bobby Hart was a part of that, right? Whether you like, he was a part of that. that yeah, that's fine. He was a part of that. Yeah. So, I don't, so the bottom line is, re-signing Bobby Hart doesn't move the needle either way for me, basically. So, he's exactly, at least, that's he, my point. Okay, yeah. he's a C signing. Okay, so that's, yep. we're starting with him as a C signing. Preston Brown is a C signing. It's, it, it, you got to have a body there, mm-hmm. and he's a one-down guy. He's going to play 30% of the snaps on, you know, he's going to play first down, hopefully gets a run stop, get him off the field, go to your nickel package, that's fine. That's a C signing. Um, the, the, the fact that, that you got Darquez Denard back takes that C grade to me up to a C plus just B minus range. B.W. Webb was a fallback, and now he becomes a fourth corner. Look, I don't think the guy's great, but he's at least adequate, and adequate beats what they have at the rest of the corner spots. And then the draft, maybe you go get another corner, and suddenly you've now got five quality, at least corners that can play. Yeah. Quality, yeah, quality is not, not the right word. Um, you know, re-signing Tyler Eifert to a one-year deal. It was an easy signing in theory, but he didn't have to do it. Maybe you didn't have to. I thought C.J. Uzama signing was a solid one. It wasn't great. He's a he's a C plus signing. He's so that's where I'm going. I'm, I don't think it was a signing where I go. Those are all D's or F's. And the fact they didn't go make a splash makes it, no. They wanted to re-sign their own, save some money to re-sign Tyler Boyd. And that's the thing that you got to factor in the free agency too that I don't think people do. Of there's got to be some money left for some of your own guys looking forward, Next looking year. down the road. AJ Green's a free agent. Tyler Boyd's a free agent. You better save some money for at least one of those two cats, if not both. Yeah, no, I, I'm going C plus B minus. I agree with all that, but I think for me, Darquez Denard is the the thing that takes it from a C to a C plus. I don't think I could go B minus on this offseason, but with Dar- Denard, I can say okay, at least they have some positive momentum. They did something, Maybe. anything, because nothing else moved the needle for me. the The tight end thing I thought was it worked out well. But it's almost a novelty. I mean, you got Uzama, who it's like, okay, that's fine. I think you draft nice. one. I think you draft one high as well. Exactly. You're hoping you find the guy of the future because yeah. Eifert just couldn't stay healthy, and and it's great that you got him back for probably on the cheap with a lot of yeah. incentives. I think that was a good signing. But it nothing about that really moves. The and I don't know enough about John Miller, the guard. I don't. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going to plead ignorance on him. He's a no name type addition. Yes. So if he has some upside, great. But at but the point, it doesn't move the needle he's at all. He's probably an upgrade over Alex Redmond, though. I mean, maybe. Who knows? But again, Alex Redman started on a team that before injuries hit other positions was a pretty decent team. Right. But, Actually, even but, better than decent. Right. But skinny. I mean, 
that that's nice that they started the season well last year, but it wasn't a good season last year, and the offensive line was a major issue. So it wasn't a I major mean, issue. It was, it was the offensive line was actually okay. It, it was line, an issue. especially if you go from the year before. The offensive line was pretty good comparatively speaking to the year before. Billy Price had some problems. But he's better than Russell Bodine. Cordy Glenn was a major upgrade at left tackle. And Clint Bowling's a good left guard. All right, Bobby Hart's an, an all-pro all player. He's I'm, not an all-pro okay. player. He's, he's a, he is an he adequate... He sucks. No, he no, no, sucks. He does, he's he's terrible. He, he is, is an, terrible. He is an adequate offensive lineman. What is going on? He is awful. What did adequate. you watch last year? Adequate. He graded out as one of the worst. Adequate. I'm just telling you, adequate. And, I'm not telling you great. No, in what way in, does it, adequate equate to second last in the NFL? He's, I'm just telling you, At he's an position. adequate offensive lineman. The, He's adequate. We have very different definitions okay. of adequate. I know it. I, I know it. But I know people anyway, love pro football focus, and they're the be-all, end-all. We're, they're I mean, not. Just watch the film of him getting I destroyed did. by every defensive end in the NFL. He did get destroyed by he had, he had moments where he wasn't good. And again, I mean, you, embarrassed. Somebody, somebody has to play there. I Okay, find anyone that's not Bobby Hart. There's not. That's, here's the problem. In the league, there aren't. But That's where we're at right now in football. Those tackles, there aren't. Go Feed some fat guy a bunch of protein and put him like it's not that hard to find fat guys. Okay, it's not. Fans just don't want to see the same loser getting bulldozed a million times. We're totally off the and, rails. And, Has nothing to do with what I want to talk about. And you about. may not because they'll probably draft one, but you got to have a fallback plan. I mean, literally, go any guy that you've ever played at that position before that's out of the league right now, go call up Willie Anderson and make him your fallback plan. Him at 50 would be better than Bobby Hart. Okay. But regardless, yes. my only point is that signing doesn't move the needle at all. It didn't help them. That's a C signing. No, that's what I said. Anyway, it's a C signing. At, yes, that, and that's all I'm saying as well. It didn't move but, the needle. But on your report so card, Dar- let me see. You went to college, right? So on your report card, the Cs are twos, right? They were they got two, two per credit hour, right? Two yeah. points. Ds were one. Fs were zero. Were there any D signings? No, were I don't. Were there any F signings? No, I mean, well, I don't, I don't like, I don't think anyone gets Ds or Fs for signings. Like Bobby Hart would be a D or F if we actually like assigned D or Fs. No one. <laughs> I'll give him a D. I'll give him one point. I'll give him a D. Right, exactly. I mean, like there, no one actually gets a D or F for signing someone. That's an addition. It really, it but can't the other be part is, you really didn't lose anybody from your own team to free agency either. Yeah, I don't. That's the big thing. I think they didn't. They didn't get gutted. Their the roster didn't get gutted. You were going to sign two of the three tight ends, and I it think wasn't you signed like the, Pittsburgh. Right, Pittsburgh's correct. roster got gutted. Correct. And, and no, as I said, you, you were going to resign two of the three tight ends, and I think you signed the right two. Eifert because it's a year deal and you yes. still you still don't know if he's healthy how good he can be right I yep. mean if he can still be really good um, and Uzama I think outperformed Croft it was a 50-50 Croft got more money to go to Buffalo you signed Uzama for a little bit cheaper yep and I like I said last time when we talked about that I think he has a little more upside um, I like I like the Uzama thing so that is where I go okay maybe you're, you're that one goes a little past C for me maybe that's moving and, towards a and C+. letting perfect walk I may almost give that an A <laughs> I I'm kind of with you there. The Denard one though was the one where I was like, "That's a piece you need." Yeah, I agree. You are you are in trouble without. And they got him for cheap, and they got him for the price that they wanted. I think that's the one where it goes, "Okay, I'll give you a C plus and say at least you did something heading into the draft." But man, do they still got a lot of work to do? And has this been an underwhelming offseason so far? Mm -hmm. In the first four rounds, you get me two offensive uh, offensive tackles, a linebacker, and a tight end, or maybe two linebackers, a uh, a tackle, and a tight end. I think you'll be okay. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the problem is we just won't know until we get Correct. a year down or two years down the line from now. You do need a, well, I would say this. Your first two-round picks need to be a linebacker or tackle one one way or the other, however it falls. That could immediately. Right away. 
Correct. Yeah, and I Correct. just, I mean, that's a lot to ask. It is. Quentin Nelson played right away in, in, in Indianapolis. Yeah, no. Leonard I mean, played right away and was the AFC Defensive Rookie of the Year. There's a lot of guys who do it, but it it's a lot. You got to hit. It is a big you ass. Gotta you got to hit. You're right. They haven't been doing that. They have not hit. John Ross. Yeah. Skinny, let's switch gears once again to college basketball. It is March. The Cincinnati Bearcats opened up an 18-5 lead over Iowa in the first round of the NCAA tournament and carried a lead to the under-8 media timeout of the second half when they led 59-55 only to watch the game slip away from them in the final minutes as Iowa outscored the Bearcats 24-13 the rest of the way. It's a topic that comes up every year at this time, it seems like. Where do you place most of the blame for Cincinnati's lack of postseason success at this point? Is it in-game coaching, lack of offensive talent slash poor recruiting, defensive scheme, a weak regular season schedule, or something else? I thought our buddy Chad Brennell made a good point on Sunday about maybe defensive scheme in the postseason. Maybe it is, maybe the matchup zone isn't the right thing in the postseason. Really? Maybe I wanted to know I wanted to know at what point do they start handing out cyanide pills in the Cincinnati <laughs> media room. If you're still recite, I mean, you're brainwashed if you think def- defense is the only problem. No, 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 it's not the only problem. But I, but I, think, I thought it was an interesting point that he made that, that maybe maybe that is something that if you're looking to change, all right, maybe that is one of the things. I thought they did a terrible job attacking the press. I thought they just did a horrible job. They got the ball to the to the middle of the floor and seemingly had three on twos regularly and didn't go attack it. That, that that that's it. That is it right there. Yeah, that that's the one thing that I thought, and, and maybe it was. You had the wrong guy in the attack spot, right? Maybe that should have been Jared no, Cumberland in the attack spot. It's a philosophical thing. No, it, it and probably it always is. has been. It probably is. Um, I, I thought that hurt them. I thought it was almost all right. We beat the press. Now let's get into a set and let's run a set. And uh, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to go attack when you got numbers and when you've got momentum on your side. And yeah, you may miss with twenty-two still on the shot clock or twenty-five still on the shot clock. It's okay. It's okay. Go get a stop and go do it again. Uh, no, I I thought that did affect them uh, somewhat. I don't think it's poor recruiting. I, I do think that maybe you take a flyer on a on a just a pure shooter every once in a while that does have some limitations in other areas, just because that guy has a skill that that you just really need in today's college basketball. But look, the other part, you're not getting a bunch of five stars to come to Clifton. You're just not. You, it's just, it's not going to happen. You may get an occasional one, and that's great. And I think they they do about as well as they can in recruiting. I don't think that's the issue. Um, yeah, I mean, in-game coaching, yeah, you can say, yeah, if you think that the defensive scheme needed to be tweaked in-game and the fact that they didn't attack the press, yes. Um, I, I go back to this. I, last year's team changes the narrative for all this, right? If it does what it should have done. And, and unfortunately, just now it's the pile-on factor, and I understand it. I understand it for, that that uh, for those that, 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 are, that are upset the way that they keep going out before the first weekend's over with. Yeah, and I think it's, it's also adding to that narrative, not just that, you know, they're getting beat in a hard-fought, tough game by a last second shot or a team that they ran into a buzzsaw they're getting leads on these teams and then just blowing it yeah. i mean just completely freezing I, up yeah you had a, you had an iowa team that had lost five of its last six coming in with its only win being over an awful illinois team that they were simply better than they had scored 50 what three against michigan i think 45 a couple of games before that against wisconsin or somebody and they're incapable of getting stops correct incapable of it and you had them to the point where your foot is on the throat and they pro- they were probably two trips away from it being a 17 to 18 point game and I was saying we're done. I they, we're done. We're, instead they fought back and and kept playing their style. Made you play their style as opposed to again, that press was nothing. It was a three-quarter court, 1-2-2 two, two, that allowed you to get the ball in the middle of the floor anytime you wanted to get the ball in the middle of the floor in an attack spot and they did not attack it. That was disappointing. Yeah. So 
I think there's three. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things contributing, but the the main factors that have held them back in the postseason. I think number one, when you start with the recruiting or the overall philosophy of the program, I don't think it's that he's doing a terrible job of getting guys. Obviously, when you're getting the AAC Player of the Year in back-to-back right. years, you have an eye for how to get some guys and how to develop them. I do think he limits himself a little bit in recruiting. I think his um, the fact that he doesn't want to fight for more top 50, top 75 type guys to come to UC, he doesn't seem to want to get in recruiting battles, limits his upside. I think when he says silly things like we won't take grad transfers because we don't want – now, granted, he will as he's proving right now in the offseason. John to get Calipari him. said he wasn't going to take him either. What did John Calipari do when well, Reed Travis? And he tried about? to get Joe Cremo last year. Yeah. You know, that ended up – what he really means is I can't haven't been able to land him and I don't try as well and my assistants aren't as good at recruiting. But – that hurts them. Like the fact that he will not go out and try to chase better talent hurts them. Now it makes his play- teams more disciplined. And in a year like this year where they overachieved, I think that is a direct result of the fact that he keeps four-year players in his program, guys that may not be as good. He doesn't run them off. He doesn't put someone in front of mm-hmm. them that may be more talented for one year, one year rental as a grad transfer. And I think that does help him ha- avoid a down year. It, it has sustained success. Yeah, but it also limits your upside because talent wins at the end of the year, and he limits himself sometimes in that regard. So that's one thing. In terms of in-game coaching, I think the way he acts on the sideline is absolutely a problem for them in big games. Um, just from the standpoint of getting way too uptight, losing his head, losing his cool, screaming at guys, I think you have seen that from his teams. They are not cool, calm, and collected when it's end-of-game scenarios, when teams are pressing them. I just don't think the NCAA, the last game of the year. I didn't think the press rattled them, though. I, no, I don't either. But uh, it's not just press. It's just everything. I mean, the Nevada game was the perfect example. The entire country saw it and was ridiculing him for the way he acted on the sideline in that game. It was so obvious his team was reacting to the way he was. Re- he was panicking. He was freaking out. His team reacted to that. Now, you know, people are going to argue with that and say that that's not the end-all, be-all, and di- different coaches act different ways, and yes. you got to be yourself. That's you fine. Do. So, so you can make that argument. I don't have, like, a definitive way to prove that's an issue. But in my mind, from what I've seen, I think it's a common theme that – you know, Mick Cronin has issues in big games by losing his head. The well, Xavier game has been very clear in that regard as well when you well, think well, back well, to the issues he's had with J.P. McCura and Chris Mack. And yeah, the one thing I said Sunday night on our basketball podcast was when, you, when you've had these exits the way you've had them, I think you do have to, if, you, if you're smart, you do have to take a step back and go, I, what do we need to change? What do I need to change? Um, and maybe it is an I need to change. Maybe it is a we need to change. Maybe it is a philosophical change that has to be. I think you at least have to look at that. If you don't, you're just beating your head against the wall, thinking that you're going to continue to do it your way. And, yeah, it's going to work in the regular season. But, again, if it comes up again, at what point do you say enough is enough? I mean, really? Yeah. So, essentially, X and O wise, they ran the burn offense for a lot of the year, which is dribble off. 20 seconds of the shot clock, get down to the final 10, and then let your best player, Jaron Cumberland, try to make something happen. And he did a lot of times. He he did a lot of times against a lot of bad teams. And against Iowa, he looked tired again. Well, against a lot of good teams, he looked tired this year. If you go back to Ken Palm and you you look at what he did against the A tier of Ken Palm, which is you know the, the good teams, like right. teams that make the tournament, high major type teams, his shooting stats, all of his stats... Not nearly as good. Because it's hard to do. It's hard to carry a team. Of course. And you're putting him in a bad situation when he's got the ball at the end of the shot clocks a lot. So when you're in a situation where the other team's on a run and they're putting a little pressure on you, and even if you're not turning the ball over, the idea is they're allowed to press you now. And if you're not going to attack them at the back end of that, 
They're doing it for free. There's no repercussion Correct. for them extending themselves in the backcourt and then falling back. You're resetting your offense and dribbling out the next 15 seconds. It, they know they can press you and go all out with no repercussions. And the one thing I would tell you, in the shot clock era, I think you're way better to attack. I mean, if it's a non-shot clock and you want to pull that out and run a minute 40 off, that's a big difference to me. But in the shot clock era where you have to put a shot up every 30 seconds, go ahead and go attack it. Just attack it and make them pay. I, right. As a coach, I always I love teams to press me because I'm going to put two guys in a spot where you're going to give me a free shot at the end of this? You're going to give me an open look at, good, great. You may get one steal in 20 possessions. That's fine. Well, that, that's going to happen. We may even throw it out of bounds. That'll be okay. It's not a live ball turnover. But you're going to give me a chance to go here to here and get a, get an open look? Thank you. I'll take that. Right. And, and I mean, he's never done that. He's not willing to do that. And that's that's one thing. But the fact of the matter is, not only are you not willing to do that, but then you pull it out and you don't run any good offense. You just dribble the clock out until you throw it to your best player and say, go make something happen for us. That's not getting it done. You don't have that type of talent to be able to pull that off, even with a guy like Jaron Cumberland. Um, the final thing is, is just that he micromanages every single possession all year long. We've talked about this many times. And I think, I think a lot they, of coaches do. Whether that, uh, yeah, They do. And I think a lot of coaches that do that struggle when it comes to the NCAA tournament time. One thing Chris McAvoy said, and I don't know if I'm interpreting exactly what he meant 100% right, but this is the way I always took it to mind. He always said that the crosstown shootout was a player's game. And what I always thought he meant by that is like, players can't be looking over their shoulder in a game like the Crosstown shootout when emotions are running high and guys are making big shots. Like when, when Trayvon Blewett's making every shot and going for 40, there's nothing Mick Cronin can tell his guys to make that stop happening, right? His guys just had to nut up that year in the second half and go kick Xavier's ass on the glass the way they did. And that's how they won that game. There was nothing he could say that was going to change what was happening with Trayvon Blewett making every shot. It was a player's game. That's what you run into the NCAA tournament. Someone gets hot on the other team. The other team gets on a roll. Those things happen. Bullets are flying. It can't be, we're looking over our shoulder. I mean, sometimes his point guards look like a horse is getting the reins yanked back on him as they're trying to fly up the court and play the same pace the other team is and getting caught up in this. And they're, oh, that's right. I got to look over my shoulder and see what play coach is going to call yeah, and see how he wants to control this possession. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's games that, that that I've coached and we did it in the tournament this year ourselves in the high school level of, I hope this is a game where we don't have to call a single set. You just go just go play. Right. Go, go play. Occasionally, just, just, just go play. And I think that the problem is if you let your players do that continuously, I think about Roy Williams. People always get mad because he doesn't call timeouts at the end of games, right? He lets his players play through those situations. He doesn't run a lot of set plays. He just play through offense. You, you, we've got a system. You play through it. You let your players make plays. You let them learn how to play with each other within within you know your system in the half court and in transition. And they learn. They get better. They they adapt to that. They develop. That's what UC's there, players there, don't do. There, they don't there learn is a how to be skill players. level there, though, right? There's a different. They, they're getting a different sure, but level player. But, okay, okay, but let's. Oh, I'm sorry, North Carolina. If you're going to go that route, is a bad example. Okay. Take Xavier. Okay. Chris Max teams advanced in the tournament, beat teams that were seated better than them because. In my opinion, they they had confidence. It built confidence throughout the year that it was a player. They were ready for players' games because Chris Mack coached them that way. I think if you micromanage every possession and you don't instill that confidence, you don't instill that understanding of here's how to play, here's how to make plays in those situations, you don't have that. It's a skill that you build well, up over again, time. Especially in the shot clock year. In the shot clock year where you're forced to hoist the shot every 30 seconds, Give me the first best look I can get. I don't, and that's the problem with it because you don't have a lot of guys that can create their own. Not not like NBA guys can. You got some that can create their own, and uh, Jaron can create his own. But eventually, there's a game where he can't. Right in the NBA, there's four other guys. If if Steph Curry can't one night, 
Kevin Durant can. If Kevin Durant can't one night, Clay Thompson can. If Clay Thompson can't one night, Steph Curry can. If they can't, Draymond Green. I mean, there's a they have one guy, one guy that could do that stuff, and that's where I go back to. I've got Kane Broom in the middle of the floor, getting ten feet in the lane. Shoot it, shoot it, go attack it. Well, I mean, again, I just I just think that the idea of playing off each other and being allowed to make a turnover because. We tried something. We were freestyling out here. It didn't work. He went back door. I wasn't expecting that. I threw it out of bounds. Mick won't allow that. He doesn't want any turnovers. Everything has to be exactly how A to B to we're going to never turn the ball over and control every possession. And I just don't think that works at the end of the year when you're in games like that. Yeah, I, I, the flip side is it does work for a 30-game regular season. Yeah. When we talk about, because a lot of it has been boiled down to pace of play. And, and uh, oh, they play slow. and that's so. And then people say, well, what about Virginia? Well, I think Virginia has had that same issue in the tournament because they do the same thing. They don't attack. They're very micromanaging in terms of their offensive possessions. Tony Bennett is. Villanova, though, is the the counter to that. Well, they won two national titles playing really, really slow. But they had shot makers, man. But they attack you. They shoot threes. They run beautiful offense. That's the difference to me. The philosophical difference of letting your guys play, not micromanaging possessions, letting them hoist. And every team's different. I I I think last year's team was a little was a little more free flowing, and I think I don't at all. It could have been more even. They were they they were a little more free flowing, but they they could have been even more. See, I remember being in the podcast last year when we were doing the skinny college basketball podcast talking about them waiting till the final 10 seconds of the shot clock, getting it into Gary Clark. He has nowhere to go, so then he kicks out to Jaron Cumberland and them having nothing to do at the end of the shot clock again when they struggled. Now, granted, when they that sh- team yeah. was so much better yes. that they didn't run yes. into that during the regular season. Right. Then they faced a Nevada team that, that, that it, it happened again. Yeah, I, so, back to your overriding question, I, and I think this always boils down to when you criticize this, people think that you think Mick Cronin's a bad coach. And he no, I, th- I think and he's I know, a and I, and I know you don't, coach. and that's what yeah. people, people need to hear that because I think when everybody – when you start – leveling criticisms everybody takes the next jump of well who's gonna be better well I, I'm not, we're not going to that point i go back to if i'm mick i would have to now at this point look and say all right what what do i need to do differently i've tried my way it works in certain circumstances it's not working where it matters the most and whether you like it or not march still matters the most i i wish the regular season meant more i really do I, i'm one that I, i'm not even all that interested in the regular season like i used to be when i was younger because it doesn't mean as much anymore when when a ninth, back in the day three teams from a conference maximum would go it's just it's different it's it, it is what it is yep. but march it's made march matter more it matters most that's what you're defined by you're a you're a sweet 16 team or an elite 8 team or a final 4 team or Lost in the first round again, team. That, that's what you're defined by. And so I think if I was Mick, I would look and say, what can I do different? What can we do different as a program to change this narrative? Yeah. The narratives can be very unfair when you're talking about the NCAA tournament because we do put so much emphasis on that because it is a one-game tournament yep. in basketball where that's a terrible way to judge who the better team is. But at the same time, when you've been at the helm since 2006, you've been to the tournament nine times in a row – and you only have one Sweet 16 right. to show for it, only one second weekend, and you've now been upset by lower-seeded teams time after time, it starts to become a thing where, well, it's not unreasonable for fans to be questioning this and wanting more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, but those wanting a coaching change, I think you take that to the nth degree, which is insanity. Yeah, that would be ridiculous to yes. get rid of Mick yes. at this point. The Xavier Musketeers didn't waste any time in looking to add to their roster this offseason, Skinny. Just over 24 hours after their season ended in the NIT on Sunday, the Musketeers received a commitment from Ohio transfer Jason Carter. Carter is expected to graduate over the summer, making him eligible to play immediately in 2019-20 with two years left 
of eligibility. He averaged 16.5 points, 6.7 rebounds, 2.0 assists, and 1.8 turnovers in 31.1 minutes per game while shooting 48.1% from the field and 34.3% from three-point range this season. My question is, do you think Xavier is just a piece or two away from competing at the top of the Big East and confidently making the tournament again? Or is it going to be another tough year for Coach Steele, barring a major addition this offseason? I think that's a pretty major addition. It's it's well. That's what I'm kind of asking. Do you think he's enough that you get him, maybe a yes. freshman to contribute some, and you're yes. right back in the thick of things, or do you think it's going to take a lot Cause, more? Because I think some of this this past year at times was defense. Right early on in the year it was defense, and it got a little bit better. But so so how much of that? That's what I want to know. How much of that do you think was? Guys not buying in and the chemistry being bad. And how much do you think was it bad personnel? I I think I don't think it was bad personnel. I I, honestly, I think there's. I I think the parts are pretty good. I really defensively, I do too. I think the parts are pretty good on both ends of the floor. I think the parts are pretty good. I think some of it was just again for everybody adjusting to a different role on both ends of the floor. In all likelihood, I, I really believe that. So you finally saw it start to click at the end of the year, and I don't think it's fool's gold. I thought, look, you were beating Big East teams, and you won in the Big East tournament, and you took Villanova to the nth degree in the Big East tournament, and you should have won the Texas game in the NIT. I mean, all you got to do is make a freaking free throw or make a freaking layup, and you're, you're, you're winning that game. Um, I mean, you got a point guard. you got a two guard. you got a, a wing in Najee Marshall. You've, you've got uh, a, a big in Tyreek Jones, and now you're adding a multidimensional guy and I think that's what I think they were missing that one other offensive piece. Because let's face it, Zach Hankins and Tyreek Jones are what offensive, Centers, yeah. the same guy, yeah. right? I mean, they're the same, different skill set, obviously. But but, but no, in, inside they're just basically scoring within four feet. Yes, correct. Yeah. So they're basically the same guy. So you couldn't play them on the floor a lot together. You sometimes had to out of necessity. Now you add another scoring threat, and maybe that makes Najee Marshall realize I don't have to jack up threes. I can attack the rim because there's somebody else to play off of. It gives Paul Scrubs maybe better open looks. It lets Quentin Gooden now decide. Well, maybe I don't have to force the action as much. I just need to create a little bit more, do some stuff in transition, and if they throw it out to me, knock down an open three. And then you add maybe a freshman piece to that and maybe one more grad transfer piece. I do think they're close. I really do because I think the personnel was fine. I don't think the personnel was an issue. I think finally the personnel started to understand what they were supposed to do. And, yeah, the only only problem was they were about one more wingish, multidimensional score away from maybe being a team that won 23, 24 games. Yeah, I thought – defensively, the personnel was good. And that's why you heard last offseason Travis Steele saying this could be the best defensive team we've had at Xavier. And then they were one of the worst for a lot of the season. I thought that was a lot about chemistry. And I don't know why exactly. Did the older guys just not want to buy in for Travis Steele at first? Did something happen between them? Their chemistry in the locker room was bad? Something wasn't right. Well, let's face it. When you had Ryan Wellage on the floor, that's a negative times 20 defensively. It was, but it wasn't just that. Oh, I know that. Yeah, They were getting bad effort at times from guys like Najee Marshall and Quentin Gunn. They were giving up on plays, and that's inexcusable. That's a thing where it's like, this is never going to work regardless of what defensive scheme you're using or anything. Thing. So what changed? The, the buy-in got better, and I, I know that's that I know, sounds but why? stupid. But, but, but I guess I where and why? That's that's, the, that's what I can't pinpoint, and okay. that's the hardest thing. You know, you can talk about it, and the coaching staff will give you quotes, and the players will give you quotes, and they all just say the same type of cliche stuff. Of Did they just to, hit rock bottom, or they just, they they had to they had yeah, to had to, to? It's just us. Keep fighting. Right, we grind yeah. it out. All that stuff. And, some of that's nonsense, right? And some of it's real. Some of it's nonsense. But it really felt like early in the year something was off. Whether it was the guys didn't trust the coaching staff, the guys didn't trust the system, the guys didn't trust each other, they didn't 
enjoy their new roles. Maybe something off the court was going on with them. I don't know what it was, but something was wrong with this team early in the year in terms of their chemistry and their buy-in. When that got fixed, defensively, I thought they were pretty darn good down down the stretch. Um, and then offensively, they had their moments. I think Steele is a really good offensive mind. He runs great stuff. Um, but this team was not assembled very well. They did not have high IQ players. They didn't pass the ball very well, They uh, and they didn't shoot it. So adding Carter helps because he can shoot the three and he can pass. He knows how to play. Um, I, will, I will start with this. I think he is clearly better in my mind than Ryan Wellage. I don't no, think there's any doubt not about even close. that. But at the same time, I also will remind people, when Ryan Wellage left San Jose State and was coming to Xavier around this time last year, Everyone thought he was going to be a great replacement for Kaiser. Yeah, Gates. I think if you go look at Ryan Wellage's, he wasn't off the charts. I, but dude, he averaged like eighteen and a half points a game, made a lot of tough shots. Like he he did a lot of things on tape. So I will just remind fans. And again, Jason Carter scored seventeen this year against Xavier with Najee Marshall guarding him and, and Paul Scruggs guarding him. So like he can play against big time competition. I, I think he's much better than Ryan Wellage. But I would just caution people who are getting over the moon about okay, that's all they needed. I think there's there's a little more work to do. and No, I think you still need to add another grad transfer guard. And you're going to need one of these freshmen to play a role. How much of I one, think plays I don't know. I think he does, too. I think at least you know 10 to 15 minutes he can give you some type of spark offensively. But it's... Well, let me ask Deontay Miles, because I've always told you I thought he's an elite shot blocker already. I think yeah. that, 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 that skill is you just either have it or you don't. He has it. He's for those who haven't seen him, his body needs a lot of work. I mean, he's just really thin. He runs the floor great. Yep, he's uh, agile. He's agile. He's actually gotten a little better offensively. Although, again, I think he can get bullied by bigger, stronger guys at the next level. So, how much does he play? Maybe just as a defensive specialist at times, or do you have to just completely say we're redshirting him and moving on this year? Yeah, I think it's om- especially when you add another guy like Carter. I think it's almost certain he's going to be a redshirt okay. because le- he's so far away from contributing at the Big East level, in my opinion, just because of his strength, like you mentioned, and a lot of the other things that he's just got to figure out in terms of he's a raw basketball player. No question. He's not very well developed. He's still figuring a lot of this stuff but out. But he's got, I'll tell you what, he's I, jumped, he's made I, a huge jump in the yeah, last year. I've coached against him since he was in middle school and, and up through high school, and he he's made a huge jump offensively. Again, body-wise, he's just, he needs a lot of work with his body. But you I, could I, I just wonder if defensively, if you thought he could come in and say, hey, we're going to get eight minutes a game out of him where he can come in and just protect the rim for a little bit, maybe change it with a block shot or two, and uh, that's what we're going to get out of him this year. Yeah, I, I just, well, the thing you have now, especially with Carter, is you add Carter to Tyreek Jones. You've got two experienced guys that are getting up a bulk of the minutes in the post. Now, you can play them together, Carter at the because, four, yeah, Jones at Carter the five. Because, yeah, Carter can play four and stretch it out a little bit. Right, right. but you can also play him at the five some when you take Jones out if you need to, play a little bit smaller there. Um, but then you also have three centers coming in. in that fr- And now, Zach Fremantle could play the four as right, well, but right. again, front court players at least. So, with Daniel Ramsey also being in that class to go with, Fremantle and Deontay Miles, he's the farthest away from being able to contribute. I, 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 I would agree. With that. Yeah, I'm sure of that. So I, I just don't see him playing much of a role. I think he does have upside to where he's probably going to redshirt. That's probably I think be he's his got best great upside. I really do. Yeah. So um, I just I, I think I, I hear a lot of Xavier fans of like they finished strong and you know they added a piece already and everyone's like we're back already. It's going to be no problem. I think there's like. There's I think, I think if that team that doesn't make this. the NCAA tournament next year, it's an it's absolute a disappointment failure. Yes, it is a failure. I think you can't miss the NCAA tournament again. But I don't know that they're comfortably making it with a you know where they're going to be wearing the white jerseys in the first round and they're competing for a Big East championship next I, year either. I, I think I think it's they possible. are. I think they are. It's possible, but there's 
there's more to figure out here. Uh, there's a lot to do this offseason, I think. So it's it's going to be a huge offseason for Steele and uh, his guys getting getting the full year with, you know, the, it's just weird when you take over a program in the offseason. You don't feel like you have a full offseason. It's such a whirlwind yeah, when you first yeah. arrive. Getting a full real offseason, I think, will be big for them. All right, Skinny. Michigan State coach Tom Izzo stole a lot of the buzz this week coming out of the first weekend of the NCAA tournament after he berated freshman wing Aaron Henry during Thursday's win over Bradley. Then at the beginning of this week, Taryn Toffer, a senior on this year's NKU women's team, penned an online essay stating that head coach Cameron Whitaker has been bullying and emotionally abusing her players. So I want to ask you, do you see these situations as our country becoming too soft do you think there's a legit conversation to be had about how far is too far in terms of coach behavior after these two stories? Where do you stand on this? I'm going to start with the Tom Izzo one. Tom Izzo one did nothing for me. I, that, that's just coaching. That, these that, are two very different two situations. Two very different situations. Yeah. So we're going to touch on, on, on them a little bit differently. I do think there is a softness. I do think that, that we're getting to that point. I know people look at the Bob Knights of the world, and Bob Knight was an emotional bull. I think he took it too far. I don't think Tom Izzo took it too far. I, look – you're in the heat of an NCAA tournament game, and this kid doesn't run back on defense. You can't suddenly politely go, hey, would you mind running back on defense? And, and, and I've gotten this kid, too, comes off the floor, my bad. No, dude, my, he's right. It's too late for my bad. I've, 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 my bad was fine back in November. My bad's not good enough now. And then you snap back at a coach. Listen, he's the coach. Just take it for what it's worth. Sit down. Shut your mouth. Let him coach you. If you don't like it, pack up and leave. I mean, I, I, I've had a couple of kids on my in AAU. I had a kid that used to, and I love him to death. He's a senior now. I, I love him. But he would get so upset with referees, thought everything was against him and a foul. He'd throw his arms up in the air. And I finally, in one game, I took him out and said, call your dad and go. Go. I can't say, no, go. Go on. Go. Went and sat in a corner for a little bit, came back, apologized. I said, apologize. You can sit on the end of the bench for the rest of the game. And we'll talk after the game. Eventually, you get to a point with a kid where you've asked him enough, and you've drilled it enough, and you've pushed it enough that it's not acceptable any longer. And just take the fact that coach is right. Coach was right. And you could see the teammates understood that. They tried to get in the middle of it and say, all right, listen, hey, dude, just at some point, shut up. Just shut up. I've coached. I coach that way. I don't apologize for it. I coach that way. If you don't like it, I'm sorry for that fact. I'm just, I'm trying to make you a better player. Now, I will say the flip side is when kids do something right, you damn well should tell them that they did something right. Good screen. Nice job taking a charge. Great rotation. Hey, nice job sharing the ball. Good job being a teammate. I've told kids on the bench you don't get a minute. I watched it. You were a great teammate today. You, but you've got to do those things too. There does have to be a balance. But I think there's nothing wrong with what Tom Izzo did in coaching hard. I don't. And I know I'm old school in that regard. I think Tom Izzo has the benefit of he has that relationship with his guys. And you hear everyone, you know, there are a bunch of players that came to his defense immediately, NBA guys, current college guys, guys that have played for him. They're all coming to defend him and saying that's how he has, but he has a family atmosphere. He lets us come back at him. Sure, this I, is, I, he's earned that trust and that respect. We love him. He, that he's made us better. All that stuff. Tom Izzo is a great coach. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, also, I, I think our country has gotten soft in terms that people are outraged by this. Like, I know. The fact that this bothers anyone is ridiculous. It doesn't bother now, me. If he had taken, a, taken an open palm and slapped him in the face, then yes, there is an issue with that. Yeah. This does not bother me in the least. I think Aaron Henry and his family can make the decision for themselves who they want to be coached by. I what? bet you Aaron Henry apologized to him as soon as the game was over. Yeah, I guarantee well, you. And, and Aaron Henry said all the right things. He said that that's how he was brought up. His parents raised him the same way. That's how he likes to be coached. And all that's fine. I have no issue with it. I would also argue that my, my take on it is not that Tom is abusing his players or that it's something I'm outraged by. 
but he is a clown for doing that. Like that whole thing out there is a clown. And by the way, I don't care at what age I ever was when you ball, like you can yell at me as a coach. You can yell at me when you come out to meet me at midcourt with your fist balled up and your finger in my face. We're fighting now and I can swing on you. We're grown men fighting at that point. I don't think you would do that. I'm not saying I would, but I'm saying that in my mind, that's what I'm allowed to do. There is zero respect in my mind for you when you ball your fists up and get in my face over a basketball game. We're fighting at that point. Just straight up, that's how it is to me. That is a sign of disrespect. You are a clown at that point. You are a million-dollar clown putting on performance art because you're justifying your million-dollar salary to all those fans who want to see you act like an old, angry white man. That's what you're doing. Let's be very clear about that. I'm gonna I, the the ball that fist I may give you. I don't think I've ever gone at a kid with that. I I, I will walk. And that's out, exactly what Izzo did. I will walk out to a kid and stare him down, going back to a bench, and just and not, just just stare him down, not say a word, scream at, scream at him. I'm fine. But you put your finger in my face and you ball your fist up at your side like Izzo was doing. You're making an aggressive move toward me. We're fighting now. Um, that's over the line to me. You're a clown. Now I don't have a problem with. Yeah, it. I don't I, care that he did it. Yeah, the, the part to me is I, I think. In both regards. If that's the, his personality, which is is, you have to be true to your personality. And the flip side is, the criticism of that quiet, well, he's just too quiet. No, if that's his personality, and he's getting results with that, that's just, that's the way he, there's, there's, there's enough of those guys, yeah, like, too. People acting like you can't coach without screaming yes. faces, Jay Wright. Like, I mean, come on, yes. get out of here. But it's my, my, my personality is almost dead on Tom Izzo's. I, you know, I'm going to coach you hard, and if I've asked you a thousand times to do something, and you still don't do it, I can't accept you not running back on defense. I can't accept that. And that's fine. And that's and that's your personality. I will also say, like, when you step over that line, it's fine to be called a clown, too. Like, you are... That is ridiculous. I, I will, you are, I, look, I've crossed the line. I guarantee yes. you I have. I and, know I have. And you've probably said, I crossed the line. Yes. And you acknowledge that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, either. Like, in our country, we have this thing of, like, it has to be one way or the other. Like, Tom Izzo is abusing players and has to be fired yeah, that's if insane. you don't disagree with it. And it's like, I can think he's an idiot for acting that way. Yeah. And also acknowledge that it's not a problem for me. Like, if Aaron Henry has too big of a problem with it, his family does, fine, leave. It's not, it's not a big deal either yeah, way, right. but I also think these coaches are putting on a play, essentially. They're yeah, I, don't think, I, really, I really don't think he's putting on a play. I, yes, think he that, is. I, I don't really. You, I, well, I think they, that's just his person. I, he believes it matters. All you guys do. All you coaches right, think he's right. screaming like that and acting like an yes. idiot matters. In fact, it doesn't at all. Maybe like not. Just, just coaching someone in a normal fashion and helping them out and being calm would probably help a lot better. Mm. I mean, it's like... You can be calm up to sense. a point. You can be calm up to a but, point. But I mean, you can you can get on someone in a rational fashion and not ball up your fist and point in their face and meet them at half court screaming like an idiot. That is That helps nothing. Do the stare down. It does absolutely do, nothing. Do the stare down. Meet them at half court and do the stare down. Now, now let's, the, let's, yeah, let's flip NKU it up. The NKU thing is a little bit different. Yes. And I do, if it's true. Well. And I don't, I'm not doubting it and I'm not saying that it is either because I don't know. Well, essentially what has happened is. And there's is, been a couple of other players that have come out. In in defense of the girl who wrote the essay. Yeah, and the original essay was essentially that um, Coach went went too far. It wasn't just that it was, we're not playing and you're not going to play and they're braiding you during practice, but it became like after practice was over, she would only talk to you alone in her office on what she called the cry couch, and then she she basically demeaned you, and then it went, became once you complained to her, you were sort of an outcast on the team, and she would punish other players for sitting with you at dinner on team meals on the bus and no we don't have proof of all this we don't know how much of this is true or what's a he said it's all he said she said thing at this point or she said she said um but immediately when players started jumping on that girl and saying oh this and by the way this girl started some games and played in all of them um they were saying well you're just airing grievances now immediately a couple more players and their family members 
came out with quotes and testimonials on Facebook and everything else saying this is exactly what happened. And it was to players that were starting and playing lots of minutes and everything else. And it sounds like it's something that has been going on, or at least the players feel like has been going on for a couple years now um, since Cameron Whitaker took over the program. This this is a whole the psychological warfare of like isolating kids and saying you're not you're not allowed to eat with each other and trying to turn them against them. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't, that's that's if that that's not good coaching. That gets into weirdest. First of all, it makes you a terrible coach if you're actually doing. Yeah, that. I mean it just it's the worst way to like win games. Um, it, yeah, I'm not sure what you're trying to prove. With that. I, I don't know what that does. I mean, that is really unless just you're being trying a to bad run, unless coach. you're trying to run somebody off. Right? Yeah, and I think that's kind of the goal here. But the problem is, problem is they're twenty nine and sixty two over the last three years. Who, run them off for who? Right, and also you're you're hurting the the players that can you must think can actually help you. You know the other ones that you're trying to isolate them from. You're hurting them because the chemistry is all off at that point. Correct, and that matters in a, in a team sport like that. Yes. Uh, so I I th- I mean in basketball and football, yes, it's hard to really come down too hard on. You know, on either side, when you don't know the full of it, I will say NKU has had ample time to reply to this. They they, they, they actually have, they, they did reply in a statement. They hid behind a very corporate PR statement that essentially says, "Yeah, we're aware of it. We already checked into it. They're brave for coming forward with their stories, and that's it." Um, I'm, I'm not Which, giving them much credit for. They they can say more than that at this point. They can come out and say would, more. And if they're going to say we don't want to because investigations are going on. Well, then it sounds like there's something to investigate yeah. here, and there's some things going on. So, I'm a, I'm not coming down on NKU yet, but they the, the fact that they're hiding behind very corporate PR statements right now is doesn't look good for them. No, uh, and again, I, I don't doubt this girl. I don't. I, I I do I do think that kids are getting softer, but based on if you if you read, you have to read it. We're not going to go verbatim for what she said here, but if you you have to read it for yourself, and it's worth the read. And initially, if you go, well, it's a he said, she said. Well, then when you get a couple other players that come out, it's and less of a And the parents. Yeah, and the parents. Then it's a little yeah. bit less of a he said, she said. I, I would say this, and I always invite this. If, if I am talking to a player in a, a setting to review their performance, I always invite the parent. I always invite the parent because I want them to at least have the opportunity to hear what I'm about to say. And you may not like it. It may be direct, but I want you to be able to hear it. I don't want that kid to misconstrue it or, or me be able to sit in a setting and just Bully that kid for lack of I don't want that. I think any coach should, should want that kind of a dialogue. And look, you, it's not always realistic in a college setting to have the parents come in and talk to them and all that thing. But I think you'd have at least an assistant coach and maybe bring the captain in so there's at least another player there. that It doesn't become a complete one-on-one he said, she said. Because I think that, that's part of that isolation is, hey, I'm going to tell you this stuff. And if you say something about it, I'm just going to deny it. Right. And I think that's a bad look. You set yourself up for that. Correct. Yeah. I, I So again, I mean... The whole, like, it's abuse and everything else. I mean, you can leave. You can quit the program. You can transfer out. I know it sucks, and you've invested a lot of yep. your life into getting to this point of being a scholarship basketball player, yep. but you have other options. It is not the end of the world if you, one, just quit playing basketball, or two, go transfer somewhere else and play for another program. Well, so, what about if it's your senior year, though, when you're going through that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's that's awful. Yeah. I mean, but I would think you would have known it before your senior year. I would it hope didn't so. just start. Yeah, right? I, would hope I mean, so. that's they, a good point. they said this has been going on for yeah. years, so you should already transfer it. If you were like a grad transfer that just came in for a year, Man, that's brutal. Like, all of this stuff stinks. I'm not saying it's fun or it's acceptable or it's something you want as your program. Um, I don't think, like, I, I, I do think we get a little soft in terms of this 
when we start throwing around abuse and everything, it's like, we'll leave the program. Le- let this woman lose her job away if you think she's that bad. Because I will say this about Cameron Whitaker's program right now. The fact that this is happening, and it's not just one girl, it's multiple players and their parents on your team who felt something like this was going on, means clearly that locker room is a mess. I well, mean, and, and the, the win-loss win record, win loss record suggests 29 and 62. I mean, it's not like this has produced results. I don't understand. And, and you're not like you took over a program that was bad. Now, listen, the cover was not full. Don Plitzwhite did a great job, but the cover was not full when Cameron Whitaker took over. But this is three recruiting classes worth now going into your fourth recruiting class. At some point— She's got her own players in there. You got your own guys, yeah. Yeah. I just—and from the standpoint of NKU— what are what are you waiting? I mean, you've got a coach who can't win anything at this point. Has really put you through some embarrassing seasons. You're now at this situation with the locker room. What are you, what are you so worried to say something about? Yeah, like I, don't, I, I, don't, I would, that's, that's I think it'd be really me. easy to step up and say either, "Hey, we think she's doing a great job and we got her back," or see him. Yeah, I mean, see you yeah, later. No, I, like, I, yeah, I agree with that. This is a disaster. So, I mean, it's really – it's not a great look for NKU right now. And, and granted, on the flip side, you have the men's program doing nothing but awesome things. And, obviously, everyone's worried about losing John Brandon and his staff to a, a bigger job. To and, Alabama. Yeah, that's, and that's certainly a possibility. But, uh, meanwhile, you've got uh, – Arkansas now. <laughs> a disaster going on, on the other side of the athletic department. They could have a ridiculous offseason over at NKU. Yeah. I mean, I, I – I, like I said, I, I I don't doubt this girl. I don't doubt this girl for what she said, and especially with those those people coming out with it. I'm with you. I think the university needs to say something one way or the other, either back her or move on from her. Yep. Skinny, the NCAA tournament field has been narrowed to 16. Kentucky is the only local team alive still. The Wildcats will take on Houston Friday night in the late game. Let me ask you this. Which Sweet 16 matchup are you most looking forward to? Also, Kentucky is a three-point favorite over Houston Friday night, and the total is 135. So who do you like in that game? Can you tell me PJ Washington's going to play? <laughs> I cannot. I don't feel great about it, though, if I'm a UK Here's fan. Here's the thing. Do you jump on that line now with the hope that he plays, or do you wait and see if he plays and watch the line go to five and a half and then go, ah, it's even worse? <laughs> I think I would or can they win now. it? Can they, can they cover they the can, three without They PJ can cover Washington. the three without him. I think I'm they not can saying too. they will, but they can. Yeah, I think they can, too. So I think you take it now. Yeah. Yeah, I think you do take it now. The total... I'm going to go under just because they're missing such a key offensive piece. And just like the Wofford game, you're going to have to win that thing defensively. And honestly, defensively, they were really good in both of the first two two tournament games without P.J. Washington. And it's not even the tournament at this point. This team is a defensive team. Right. And we don't, don't always think about it that way with Kentucky and their young talent and stuff like that. But this team is a defensive team. That's how they're winning. Ashton Haggins, um, Keldon Johnson, they have been T- Tyler Hero was great. Tyler's defen- been great defensively. Their backcourt has really set the tone defensively. And then they got all the athleticism in the front court and toughness Reed Travis getting back has obviously helped that as well I like Kentucky 60 69 63 and that would also put it at the under yeah I'm gonna go Kentucky 63 57 I think we both agree on the under and, and yeah, so your way under. you're well under yeah yeah I'm gonna go Kentucky 63 57 I think they play a little more through Reed Travis I think he gets some things done hero did not shoot the ball great in the Wofford game and I I, I don't think he I, he's so inconsistent with it but I don't think he's gonna go multiple games in a row not shooting the ball well. So you're, you're like, hey, you got through that round without him. Part of it, too, he was also chasing McGee for a lot of it, and that's a lot of guy to chase. And yep. kid was 0 for 12, and yeah, he missed some clean looks. But 0 for 12 also, you got a 6-6 guy in your face for a chunk of the game trying to make tough shots over him, and he's usually good at it. Except how many times do you think in the SoCon he's got a 6-6 guy in his face making it difficult for him? 
Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. When you start looking at his stats, too, it's another thing where, uh-oh. Yeah. Every time he's faced that high level. And it could have been just in one of those games, and it came at the wrong place at the wrong time for the poor kid. Well, and it's also tough to be a guy who's not a great athlete anyways and then try to carry a team against a bunch of elite athletes yeah. when you have nothing on your side. Yeah, so correct. Uh, that can certainly skew the stats right. uh, against you as well. Now, which matchup? Yeah, this which matchup easy. is your this favorite? This is so easy for me. This is easy. What Auburn Carroll. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as much as I like I defense, as much as I like defense, that 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 going in, I know what pace I'm going to get, right? This is like a this is like a Vegas game from the early 90s where you just Vegas and somebody good it was just going to be a track meet. And and you just knew that going in. It wasn't a matter of grinding out possessions, which I don't mind. I don't. I'm an old school guy, as you know, and as probably anybody that's listening to this knows. I'm, I don't know. I like my teams to play fast. I like to get off. I, I, I want to get up the floor and get the first best shot I can get. So even though I talk about being an old school guy, I, I like playing that way. Yeah, because you're a logical basketball guy <laughs> well, as well. Maybe there's that too. But I, I do. I think this is just, it, it's just got a lot of fun written all over it. it you talk about, we talked about before a player's game. If you're Bruce Pearl and you're, you're uh, Roy Williams, I don't even know if you even bother getting up. You just sit down. You don't even call. Maybe you're out of bounds under. you got to call your out of bounds under stuff, right? What? But other than that, you don't call a set one. Maybe oh. off of a side out. Over under two timeouts in this game. Oh, I think it'll be over because I think it'll come down to stretch where timeouts are going to be utilized. But, but they, neither one of them call. Well, uh, Bruce might call them. Roy never calls a timeout yeah. in the final minutes. Yeah, but you may need to in this one. It's just because I, I, it's funny you say that. Maybe you do just to get yourself an extra rest. I'll tell you what, in the TV first time. half, I don't think there'll be a timeout. Call. You got to th- you got the one on each side. You got to take one. Use it or lose it. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> they might just lose it. <laughs> maybe. They might just not need it. Um. I mean, it just feels. I think I saw the total. What did I see? One seventy six. Does that sound right? Did you look at it? At what? I think that sounds right. But at what number could they put it where you wouldn't feel good about it? Like, I mean, you'd have one seventy six. Still makes me not feel good about it for this reason. I don't. Sometimes you play at such a fast pace like that. There's not a lot of fouls called, so there's not a lot of stoppage of play. And all of a sudden, you go a minute and a half of neither team making a shot despite pace, and that kind of skews the over-under sometimes. I mean, as everybody looks at it, they're like, oh, this game's going to be 107 to 100. It's it's possible. It could also be 82-79, and you're like, damn, that's still a lot of points in a college game, and it went way under. I feel like I'd have to see, like, 190 on the board before I'd really? be Really? I mean, I, obviously, I would... I would the ranch on under no, at that point. Obviously, but. I wouldn't be betting, like, a 185 line or anything, but I think for me to look at it and for it to click in my mind, like, oh, yeah, that's too big of a number, it would have to be, like, 190. No. Like, it, it would have to be so high for me to be like, oh, no, no chance. It is by far the most intriguing, but I'm telling I think the Sweet 16 matchups, for the most part, are really good. They're unbelievable. You want to know the other one I would have had, uh, probably... Uh, a narrow second. I, I got one too. Go out. Let you go first. LSU versus Michigan State, I think, is going to be Ooh. a fantastic match. I think Gonzaga and Florida State's going to be a fantastic match. That's an interesting one because Florida State has the actual length and athleticism to contend with Hachimura and those guys inside. Brandon Clark. I, that's going to be a really fun one, too. I mean, all of these matchups are it, pretty it, much Michigan, good. Michigan-Texas Tech is legit. It's a rock fight, but it's legit. Yeah, I'm not as excited to watch it, right, but I but think it's, it's going to be a really good game. Yeah. I, I can't Honestly, I can't find a game in there where I'm like, oh, that matchup stinks. Yeah, even Virginia-Oregon, because Oregon, while they're a 12 seed, and I don't think they're good, they started getting things clicking at the end of the you. year, and they're playing really well, and the way they style of play and the way Virginia style of play, they'll scare you, absolutely. I love Peyton Pritchard, Oregon's point guard. He's really playing well. I mean, he's not a not one of the best talents in in the uh, tournament for sure, but he just sets the table yeah, so no. well for them. Man. It, 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 again, they were that the the twelve seed that came out of a league that didn't deserve to have more than the two teams they got Ed get in right, but they've got a little pedigree. Dane Altman's pretty good, and they're playing the right way. They got in the right bracket. We talked about the, that was the right bracket, right? Where the style of play bracket is is that. 
Even that's a good. That's right. Even that's a good matchup. Yeah, I think. But yeah, Auburn, Carolina. Put your seatbelt on and don't don't bother getting up. For <laughs> I a think while. everyone would have had the same answer for that question. All right, Skinny. NFL owners voted Tuesday to allow replay reviews on pass interference calls as well as non calls. Coaches will now have the opportunity to challenge pass interference calls or non calls outside of two minutes of each half while the booth will automatically review any closed calls inside of two minutes. The Cincinnati Bengals were reportedly the only team to vote against the rule change. Old Mikey just wasn't ready for it. Nope. Uh, Do you agree with the rule change or not? Mike reminds me of the guy that just says no to everything, right? (laughs) He's he's like the grandpa. No. Can I have a carrot? No. Wait a minute. I just asked for a carrot. No. Back in my day, we... (laughs) We didn't have this newfangled oh, replay. We don't like replay. It costs more money. Um, I, I just think it opens that Pandora's box. I, I think eventually, are we going to look at every play and wonder was that a hold? Is that an offside? Well, I, I, except, except, what's the concern there? If so, I don't know. It, I, it's not like there's going to be I, more stoppages. We you want, want the, the same game to be so perfect, and it's just but, not. It's but, sports. Let it play out. And but, occasionally, humans make mistakes. But if we're going to review stuff anyways, we have the technology in there, and it's a set number of reviews well, anyway. that's the only thing I, I don't like. I don't like – if you're going to do this, if you're a coach and you keep reviewing it and they keep getting it wrong – then I think you should have unlimited reviews. I think you should have two strikes and you're out. Well, then that's the that's the opposite of what you were just I know that, no. too many reviews, well, well, and now you but, want more of them. I, I either I either want as many as you can get, as long as you get them right, or just let's not let's do away. Just take the replay part away from it. So how do you do that? If you're 100, percent you just get to keep going. Yes, as long as you're 100. Yes, fine with that. you get two two strikes. You get to miss twice. You get to miss twice. Nah, I don't like that. You get to miss twice. The problem like is that. though. Okay, you get so. All right, let's say ball thrown down the field, and I'm cornerback A, and you're wide receiver B. And we are hand-to-hand combating all the way down the field. And let's just say no flag is thrown. <laughs> I'm the guy on the other side, the offensive guy, thinking, wait a minute, my guy just interfered. And I'm on the other side going, no, wait a minute, I think their guy interfered. Are we going to get to that point? Well, I, I, that will happen. <laughs> That's a funny thing to think about. There's also just – teams will use this as a strategy where if it's third and long and they didn't get it, let's just see. Let's see if we can get something. Yeah, here, uh, right. let's review that. But again, you got to be very strategic, though. You do, but it's gonna. I mean, there's gonna be a time where it happens, like fourth quarter. You got your challenges left. Let's go ahead and do it. Type situation. The only concern I do have is inside of two minutes, the booth going to the reviews. Do it every time, every single it play. It's a little concerning because there's so much contact in those end of game plays. And eventually, because I know Bill Belichick's thumping this of the whole. Hey, let's let's look at every play to see if there's a penalty on every play. I. I are we going to get to that point where, hey, wait a minute, that guy held and they didn't see it? And sometimes, look, you don't see it. You're on the field. Even though you're an official, you may not see that hold. But the booth did and TV did because TV's got a better angle. Yeah, that's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. But we're opening that Pandora's box to that. I mean, you're kind of right about that. I, I, I would say this. You, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you are. there's going to be in the last two minutes the potential for literally a challenge on every play. You're going to get to that point. And if you're okay with it, that's fine. I don't need a four-hour NFL game. Well, it's and that, that's the thing. If it, if it starts lengthening the game... And it is a one-year trial basis. That's my issue. And and the only time you run into it lengthening the game is if you get into the final two minutes and they're just all of a sudden got a bunch more challenges because there's a bunch more potential pass interference type plays. Now, the nice thing is... How about at the end of the half on a Hail Mary? How many times do you think pass interference occurs on a Hail Mary at the end of a half? Probably a decent amount. Probably almost every time. 
Somebody's pushing somebody. Yeah. Whether it's the offensive guy pushing or the defense, somebody's pushing somebody. Well, and that doesn't seem like those are easy plays to sort out, even from a replay. That's my point. There's like six replays. So in that case, it's so subject. Who pushed first? Did Rick Broing push first, or Richard Skinner push first? Did the offensive guy push first, or the defensive guy? Who pushed last? Who pushed? I don't know. I, I came in here feeling like this is a pretty good rule, pretty good idea because of that Saints play that sticks in everyone's mind yes, from the playoffs. it was a terrible call. And it's I such an it. easy thing to review, it felt like. Why not? But you are making some good points. I think you're swaying me the other direction now. I think I might be on your side. Or let's just open it up to every single play. There's somebody in New York that does every play. They look at it real quick, and they buzz the referee and go, you guys missed 68 holding. It was clear, clear as daylight. He tackled Fred coming off the edge. I know you didn't see it, but we saw it. You buzz him. Penalty flag, go the other way. Help him out. If you want to help him out, help him out that way. Mm. Yeah, I, I I don't like the idea of having to monitor linemen the whole game for holds. I, I don't either. That's That seems less than ideal. But you got to admit, there's, there's there's some blatant stuff that, that, that that's not called. There is? Oh, there's definitely is. And that's I've always been on the, the side of if you've got the technology and you're going to waste time doing it anyways, why not? Fix everything that you can fix, right? Like the like that end of game right. play in the in the Saints game felt like you have to fix that when you can so easily do it by a replay and you already have that technology in the game. But you're right. I mean, this is how, a league that makes a lot of money. How right? far do you extend that? Could you have three guys watching a monitor on every play and quickly diagnose whether a penalty was called? That's what I'd prefer. I would prefer okay. that they do not put a ref in the booth and have to hold up the whole game. I would prefer that there is they've got ridiculous amounts of money that they can't figure out what yeah. to do with anyway. They give it to the military and all types of stuff and spend it all on all types of dumb things aside from that. But, I mean, why not just assign replay refs to every game? Like you said, put three guys on every I mean, game. Whatever the number. I don't know what and, the number is. Uh, yeah, five. whatever it is. Two, one, three, five, however many it needs to be to where as soon as it happens, they're reviewing, they're reviewing, they're reviewing. By the time it even gets to the point of someone throwing a flag or the ref coming over to the sideline where he would go, normally duck under the little blue hood to, to review it, it's not even a. It's already decided. The the call's already coming down to him. He puts on the headset. They tell him. Well, he just got a buzzer. Right he just got a little buzzer. Maybe even a pager. A pager it says holding, holding sixty eight. <laughs> Dime bags for the low. <laughs> Concourse, concourse too. <laughs> exactly. Maybe there's something like that. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a guy on the sideline. He's got the iPad. They send him the quick thing, and he goes. He he blows his whistle over there, and the referee walks over. He tells him, "Hey, they saw 68 holding. Call that call that penalty." How, do you know how many legal contact penalties will be called? Would be called. It happens on every play. <laughs> yep. My bad. Wrong number. <laughs> yep. I'm just. I I don't know. I again, we're trying to. I, it was a horrible call in a horrible situation that was egregiously missed. And there was also one in the Kansas City game that was egregiously missed, the roughing the passer. Why doesn't like Sprint or Verizon or whoever their big phone company that has a deal with already have like a text deal? Like, you know, like maybe, it's a, maybe it's the iPhone text. Like, how, how is that not sponsor, a sponsored thing? It, it might be now if you're going to have referees they, doing that. They've got the Microsoft Surface on this. Like, all that stuff is sponsored. Why do they not have refs with cell phones getting the call or getting the text from or the hell, booth? Or hell, they just put it up on a big big board. Well, yeah, it should do all simultaneously. Yeah, it just looks like correct. you're getting to see what the ref's seen as he's pulling it, out of his pocket. Exactly right. I think that's Electric Factory. I there think we're go. creating good content. I here. like that. Okay. And then we sponsor it, and off we go. All right, let's do it. The skinny, listen to me, the Goodell. Listen to me, Goodell. I'm helping. Yeah, he'll be he'll be the first one to listen to us. He's very open minded. Skinny, it's that time of the show. The Uh-oh. time we're all waiting for. There's a new video out. 
It was uploaded online by a young couple with a newborn baby that captured a ghost on the couple's nanny cam near their baby's crib. The couple became suspicious when they found three deep purple scratches on the baby's face. The mom claims to have also heard screaming, stomping, and laughing while home alone and was even woken up from her sleep by the sound of a male shouting. Quote, there have been times where my, me and my fiance would wake up in the morning and I would hear an angry male voice like someone had stubbed their toe, she explained. It scares us that it could do something else. I mean, there was a morning I woke up and I felt like someone's hands were around my neck. An investigator determined that there is paranormal activity in the home, but not sure what is causing the problems at the guest house. The Daily Mail also notes the house's former owner died from a fall down the stairs, Ooh. leaving behind a schizophrenic brother who later died. The couple says they no longer leave their baby alone and they are looking to move out as quickly as possible. Skinny, you have reviewed the video. I did review the video. Is this video and story definitive proof that there are ghosts? I think we have finally come to the point that we can end this charade because you realize that there are now ghosts. No! What? No! You saw the video! I saw the video and maybe it's the nanny in the dark. Skinny. Maybe! Come on. Maybe the parents did the mark on the kid and they're trying to get away from child abuse. Well, first of all, the, the, allegedly, he's the, don't sue us, whoever this nice fa- young family is. We're not accusing you of anything. Just, I said maybe. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, did you, you didn't see the picture of the baby's face. I will say this. I did not see the picture of the baby's face. Scratch marks uh, looked kind of bizarre. Weird. They okay. were. I was thinking it was going to be very faint. Like, like acid burns? No, not acid burns, but they were like almost bruising looking, and there were like streaks going down the Could face. Could the baby have been leaning up against maybe the railing of the crib? Yeah, maybe. And that sm- caused it? Smashed its face into the railings of the no, crib. No, just laid, laid up against it. It could have been. Uh, look, all I'm saying is when you see the video, and I tweeted it out, so if you want to look I, at it, at Rick Brewing on Twitter. There, there, is, there is an apparition. You like that word? There is an apparition that does well, show up. But here's the thing. The apparition is one thing. We but see orbs and stuff all the time, but the baby, like... Hops, all of a sudden you see that person appear, you see the baby kind of hop up and is like looking around like it hears or sees, notices something yeah, going on. because mom and dad are in the background making noise that you don't see probably. And then the ghost just continues to go right through the room. It's like a white, how would you describe the ghost? It was like a whitish figure that no, looked. No, kind of a, kind of a darkish figure. It just, it, it's, it's like, well, it's, it's, like a, it's like a glow, right, that's my point. Yeah. It could be anything. Well, there's like a It could be somebody in the back, it could be a mirror with somebody in the background walking on another side of it. But you didn't see like a full figure, like it wasn't a full person. No, but it, it was like an like, upper, like a it chest It looked like an a, upper body walking yeah. through the room. Yeah, chest and shoulders, chest, chest, shoulders and head. Yeah, like if you and did torso. a headshot, out your torso, it, and you cropped it, yeah, you cropped it off at whatever the, the chest area. I would go a little lower, maybe, uh, maybe a belly right. button or so. I didn't see belly. I, I, didn't, belly I didn't see a belly button. I didn't either. It could have been an alien. It could have been, it could have been a lot of aliens things. don't have belly buttons. Could have been a lot of things. Are I, aliens real? I, I would tell you this. I, I I'm starting to hear doors close and keys keys jingle in my house. I'm hearing keys jingle now. In my I've house. got a weird one for you. Okay, and I have no way. Well, I think I have a way to explain this, but it is a reach to get to. For me to justify this, it's a reach, okay? So I came home the other day, and there is a shell casing in my room. A, a, a small, like, it had to be like a twenty-two. I mean, it was a... Do you own a gun? No, never. Does your brother? Never. Okay. Never shot guns, not, not into them at all. Wouldn't even know what I'm doing with it. A little gold shell casing in my room. and On so, the floor? Sitting on the floor, just in my carpet. I walk in, it's the first thing I see. It's just like out in front of... It, I've got like my bed on one spot. There's like a... TV entertainment type thing off to the right. It's just sitting in between there. Clear as day. Like, never would have missed it before if it had been in my room previously. Did the Fernando brothers come after you again? No idea. But I, my only guess is that I work in a newsroom. 
There are cameramen who go out to live scenes all the time for stuff like that. Only thing I can think of is that they tracked one in on the bottom of their shoes and maybe I stepped on it that's and then possible. tracked it into my house. That sounds logical. That's the best I can do, but you got to admit that's 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 a hard. Random shell casing appearing in my room. What kind of shoes? What kind of shoes do you usually wear? Just tennis shoes, right? Always tennis shoes. You got them on right now. I mean, I've I got, got I got a couple different pairs, but like the the, the ones you're you're showing me, there's would, no way would that would be would hard stick for in a shell casing yeah. to stick in. I, I'm not gonna. Lie I don't to really you. have a pair that's like deeply ridged on the bottom that you. I've feel got a couple like pairs like that, but there, yeah, but, but, I, I, but it's possible, right? I mean, maybe it really stuck in there. Something. I mean, where else would a shell casing appear from? Just in the middle of my room? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what you're wrapped up in your off hours, Chief. I, I don't. <laughs> well, I mean, if uh, it could be, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't want you to call yourself out on this podcast for the things you might do if in your off hours. El Chapo's men are waiting for me so when I'm I wondering. get home to edit this podcast. Then you'll know. Less than then I Then you'll know. So, oh my gosh. So a ghost left a, a shell casing is what you think? I did not. I never what mentioned about your, okay, the G Here's word. my question. You're, 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 you live with your brother, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, could he have tracked it in somehow, some way? There's, put it this way. If a shell casing got tracked into our house, it is 1,000% me who did it, okay. not him. Okay. I mean, he, he well, is could have been a, in a goofy place where you, act, you, know, you step on it for some reason. I don't yeah, know. no, he just doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, he's, he's an accountant. <laughs> he doesn't do a whole lot. He's a corporate guy. He's, he goes to accountant. He goes out with his girlfriend. Like, they go to right, nice but, dinners. I, I know, but you, I never, I mean, you just never know. Walking down the street, you might step on it. I, I don't know the answer to this. I just can't see. I can't see him having tracked in the shell case. And also, it was in my room. It's not like he just comes into my room with his shoes on normally and just walks around in there. All right, back to this family for a second. So they get them moved, you know? Well, that's the, they, they're trying to save up money to move. Um, also, but they're in a house that's owned by the, the girl's mom. So, like, I don't understand. Why are you not, one, just moving into the mom's this, house? I, this is, I remember the Scooby-Doo one. To, this, this is the one where the mom tr- the mom tried to force them out of the house by freaking them out with the ghost. And those meddling kids figured it out. It, that very well may be what's going on here. But if you woke up with... So, Professor you, Smith! You felt like someone's hands were around your neck. You felt like there's an old man stubbing his toe that I isn't can, stubbing a, his toe. I, I woke up in a startle at 6 o'clock in the morning today feeling feel like a spider crawled across my neck. What was it? I don't. I, I couldn't find it. It's nothing. Uh, probably a spider. You know, you eat three spiders in your life on average. Uh, the average not, person. I don't even want to know where you found while that. while you're sleeping. No, that's I, a fact. Okay, I did not know the that. The average person oh. eats three spiders while yeah, they're asleep. I'm not be able to go to bed during their life. Oh my god, where am I going to sleep? So today? that might have been your one. It's possible. One of your three. It's that just possible. Happened. Although you're getting a little late in life to be just hitting your third. I feel like I, you probably I, have already gotten them, man. Yeah, probably on number five. Spy, that was spider number five, and he escaped. Yeah, I feel like you're probably above average for how many spiders you've eaten. I'm I probably you slept on too many floors in your younger days. <laughs> slept on a few couches, I can tell you yeah, that. That's, that's good enough. All right, we're like at 90 minutes of this right, podcast. Brother. We better wrap it, it up. It was a good time, as always. We'll be back next week with more sports talk locally and on the national scene, and who knows, maybe a ghost story or seven to talk about as well. For Rick Boy, I'm Richard Skinner. It's the Skinny Podcast, presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati.